Go and grab your Bibles, church, if you would, and open up with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians uh, chapter 1 this morning. And let's bow together for a word of prayer before we turn our attention to Scripture. Lord, we do come as a church body this morning and um, just express that we stand in awe of you, Lord. We stand in awe of your greatness. We stand in awe of your majesty. And we stand in awe of your mercy, Uh, Lord. We know that we have nothing of our own that we could claim um, that would give us a right to approach you, that would give us a right to pray to you and expect to be heard. And so everything we have, everything we are, every privilege that's ours, we know that we have through Christ alone. And so we come holding to Christ, trusting in Christ, clinging to your mercy. And Father, we pray for more mercy this morning. We pray for mercy that the gulf, uh, Lord, that exists between our mind and yours, between our ways and your ways, that it would be bridged through your word and that you would speak. And we pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Um, Again, church, we're in Colossians chapter 1. And we started last week working through the, the last paragraph in the first chapter of Colossians. And I told you when we started in it, that this last paragraph really gives us a great picture of what Christian ministry is supposed to look like. What is Christian ministry supposed to look like? That might be a question that you've never thought much about, but if you're a Christian, you really should. What should church ministry look like? What, what should my goal be as pastor? What should our goal be as a church? How are we supposed to reach that goal as, as pastor and church? Um, for the American church, its view on church ministry has largely been shaped over the last few decades by a church in the suburbs of Chicago. The name of the church is Willow Creek Community Church. A few decades ago, it just almost overnight exploded in growth, and it became a multi-site megachurch, had over 20,000 people attending one of its branches on a typical weekend, and its ministry philosophy spread like wildfire across the U.S. And the basic idea of the ministry philosophy was that churches should shape what they do around the focus of reaching seekers. So what that means is that pastors need to spend a little more, uh, I should say it this way, pastors should spend a little less time focusing on theology and a little more time focused on marketing. So you need to survey your community and you need to figure out what it is that your community is interested in. Find out what the community needs and then shape your church to fit that need. So you you might need to do your sermons are uh, four tips for getting out of debt and six tips for having a happier marriage. And it's okay in those sermons, they would say, to use some Bible verses. Just don't spend too much time in the Bible. If you spend too much time in the Bible, that kind of turns off seekers. And so you just don't want anything in your church service to look or sound or feel too churchy. And then when you gather together as a church, you need to make sure that in your church gatherings, you need to shape it so that it's appealing to those seekers. So people like concerts, so you might need to dull the lights and blare the music and uh, whatever it takes just to appeal to seekers in your services. And then the next step is this ministry philosophy says the way that you get those people connected to your church is through programs. So you need lots and lots and lots of programs. And once a person visits a couple times, you need to figure out a way to get them connected to a program. So just to kind of sum that up. So the idea is that you shape your church 
to scratch people wherever they itch. And that's how you get them to come. And then you keep them by having lots and lots of programs and figuring out a way to get them connected to some program. And that's how you, you keep folks in church. And that, that ministry philosophy became predominant across the U.S. Even churches that did it in, intentionally embrace that ministry philosophy still have been affected by it to one degree or another. And we could spend all service talking about the problems with it and the damages caused by it. But I'll just say it this way. The big problem with it is it just doesn't match the picture of church or the picture of ministry that you see in the Bible. And Colossians 1 is one of those really helpful passages when it comes to thinking about what church ministry should look like. You can even think of it this way. You know, you hear lots of talk today about the importance in businesses, for instance, of having a mission statement. Every company, we're told, needs a mission statement. And your, your mission statement defines what success looks like. And your mission statement helps clarify what your purpose is as a company. And you need a mission statement to do that. Well, you could say that this last paragraph in Colossians 1 could serve as the church's mission statement. So I just want us to read it together again. We read it last week, but didn't make very much ground. So Colossians 1, we're starting in verse 24, and we'll go down through verse 29. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a church in the city of Colossae. And Paul writes, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ, for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. I told you last week that I think we can sum this passage up under the heading of uh, five traits of authentic Christian ministry. Five traits of authentic Christian ministry. We covered the first one and a half last week, so I'll do a real quick review. Number one, we saw last week that Christian ministry requires joyful suffering. Christian ministry requires joyful suffering. Paul begins this by saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I mean, you understand that in large part, the Christian life, wonderful rewards, but it's a call to much sacrifice. I mean, the Christian life begins by saying, deny yourself, take up your cross to follow after Jesus. And here, Paul says that his role in ministry is to fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. You'll remember from last week if you were here, I made the point, Paul is not saying that Jesus' sufferings on the cross somehow were insufficient. We recognize that at the cross, Jesus fully accomplished our atonement. He won salvation for all of his people. But what Paul's saying here is that the work Jesus accomplished through his sufferings on the cross 
that work is now carried forward in large part through the sufferings of his people. Okay, so the work Jesus accomplished through his suffering is now carried forward by the sufferings of his people. So, so we step forward as God's people. This is, this is what we do in ministry. We step forward like Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and we say, hey, I'm willing to endure all things for the sake of God's elect. Whatever it takes to get the gospel out, whatever it takes to build people up in faith, whatever it takes to help God's people continue in the faith, count me in. So the Christian life is not first and foremost, it is not mainly a call to fame and riches, it's mainly a call to joyful suffering. Okay, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Number two, Christian ministry requires faithful stewardship. Paul says that he is a minister, and, and that's the word servant. He's a servant, he says, according to the stewardship of God. Okay, he's been giving a stewardship. A steward was a, a servant in a household who had been called to manage the estate for the owner. So a steward had the job of watching over the estate according to the instructions of the owner and for the benefit of the owner. And Paul's saying that's where we stand as Christians. That's what ministry is. We're involved in a work and we're caring for a people who don't belong to us. We're not the owners. It's his flock, it's his body, it's his church, and we're called to follow his instructions. So what are those instructions? Well, Paul says that he would do this work, verse 25, he would do this by fulfilling the word of God. Or your translation might word it, he would do this by fully carrying out the preaching of the word. In other words, the main way Paul would care for the people of God was with the word of God. The main way we're called to care for the people of God is with the word of God. So we, we as a church don't take God's word and tuck it away in a back bedroom or back room somewhere and reserve that only for the people who really want to be serious about their faith. And if you really care about theology or want to go to seminary, we'll usher you to the back room and then we'll really study the word. No, 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 no. The, the whole way that ministry is done is through the Word. The way God brings life, the way God builds life is through the Word. And so God's Word is the center of everything that we do in Christian ministry. Because this is what God uses for salvation. Listen to how James says it. This is James chapter 1, verse 18. James says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Look that up there a second. James says we were brought forth. Brought forth means born again. So how were we born again? He tells us two things. First, of his own will. That means God's the actor in the new birth. God is the initiator in the new birth. But how, how else does this new birth happen? Of his own will, by the word of truth. Or listen to how Peter says it. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Peter says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Again, how are we born again? Well, Peter says we're born again through the word of God that lives and abides forever. So God's word, particularly the gospel, which is the heart of God's word. God's word is like the, the spiritual defibrillator 
that the Holy Spirit uses to bring dead people to life. So if we want to see people brought to life by God, then the Word of God has to be at the center of the ministry. And then the Word of God becomes the spiritual milk and the spiritual meat that God uses to strengthen and to grow that life. So Christian ministry is about investing in people's lives with the truth of God's Word. Get that, because there's, there can be so much that passes for Christian ministry that has no connection to God's Word at all. And, and the greatest curse that can befall God's people is to gather in the house of God and to meet with the people of God but not actually hear the voice of God. Where we're just getting a constant diet of moralisms and religious babblings and spiritual cliches, but we're never actually being confronted with the voice of God in His Word. So the touchstone for Christian ministry is the Word of God. And Paul elaborates on what his preaching consisted of when he says that he preached to them the mystery of God. You might remember that word mystery from last week. When you see the word mystery in the Bible, it's talking about something that was concealed in the Old Testament that's revealed in the New Testament. So a mystery is something that was there before. You saw it in little hints, but it was kind of veiled. But now in the New Testament, the veil has been pulled back and there's this grand truth that's been put on display for everybody to see. And the mystery that Paul's talking about here is the good news that in Jesus, God is saving all kinds of people. Jesus didn't just die and rise from the dead to redeem Jews. He died and rose from the dead to redeem every tribe and tongue and people and nation and to bring these people together and make them one in Jesus. And if you want to know what the good news of this mystery is, if you want to hear the promise of this mystery distilled down into one simple phrase that's right there at the end of verse 27. Here's the promise of this grand mystery that's contained in the gospel. It's the promise of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, probably Paul's favorite way to describe what it means to be a Christian is he says that Christians are those who are in Christ. He uses that language over and over and over again in the Bible. So when you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you are so spiritually united to Jesus that God the Father sees you in Christ. So you are accepted by God the Father because He sees you in His Son. Your life, if you're a believer, your life is hidden in Christ. Well, now Paul's saying it the other way. He's saying if your faith is in Jesus, not only are you in him, but he is also in you. So Jesus isn't just for you. He's not just near you. He's not just with you. He is spiritually in you. And make sure you get the connection between this and what Paul just said up in verses 15 through 20. So who is this Jesus who is in us when we believe? Well, Paul said he's the image of the invisible God. He's the sovereign ruler over all of creation. He's the one who everything was made by and through and for. He's the only one who has the power, Paul said, to put this broken universe back together. So one day, he's going to reconcile all things to himself. 
And right now, he's showing he has that power by reconciling a people to himself. One day, he's going to make all things new. Right now, he's showing he has that power by making a new people. He is the creator and sustainer of everything. And Paul's saying, that's the Jesus who is now in you when you believe. So, so your access to him could not be any better. Your communion with him could not be any deeper. And Paul adds, Christ in you. This is the promise of the gospel. You believe and you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope is a future-focused word. We have this steadfast confidence as we look toward the future that if my faith is in Christ, what the future holds for me is glory. Yeah, it's wonderful. In Christ, I'm forgiven. In Christ, I'm reconciled. In Christ, I'm made alive. But we know there's more glory still to come for those who are in Christ. And the fact that Christ is in you now is the guarantee that there's more glory to come. Okay, so the promise is, here's the grand mystery. In Jesus, God is putting his glory on display, and in the cross and resurrection, he's saving all sorts of people, making them one, and all those who believe now have Christ in them, and this eternal promise of glory. Okay, that's the stewardship. There's a message we're entrusted with, and apart from that message, there's no Christian ministry. Here's the third thing. And this, this is kind of carrying that to the next step. Number three, Christian ministry requires a consistent message. Paul's going to get even more clear on what this message is. Christian ministry requires a consistent message. Just look at the first three words of verse 28. Paul says, Him we preach. Or your translation might say, Him we proclaim. That's the message. And notice Paul doesn't say, Him I proclaim. Paul says, Him we proclaim. Meaning this is, this is what we're all called to. This is, this is what bleeds out into every area of authentic ministry. We proclaim Jesus. He's the center of every sermon. He's the lifeblood of every ministry. He's the goal of every class. Our goal is not for people to leave here impressed with how beautiful the sanctuary is or impressed with how great the Sunday school teacher is. Our goal is for people to leave impressed with Jesus. Because Jesus is the center of everything. That's, that's what Paul's saying. We make much of Christ. I remember hearing a, a pastor say one time that he had learned in preaching that he had learned that it is impossible for the preacher to make much of himself and to make much of Christ in the same sermon. You gotta choose one or the other. Either you're gonna make yourself look great or you're gonna make Christ look great, but you're not gonna be able to do both. And our goal is to make Christ look great. Because you don't need me. You don't need a better program. You need Jesus. And so in everything we do, our main impetus, Paul says, is to proclaim Him. He's the living water thirsty souls need. He's the bread of life. He's the John 10 shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. Jesus is the one you were made for. Jesus is the one everybody in our community was made for. So the best thing we can do for everyone is to proclaim him. Okay, so Paul says, we preach Christ. So, so if we do everything else great, if I do great Bible stories, 
uh, if we give people lots of opportunities for community service, but we fail at clearly, emphatically pointing them to Jesus, we fail in our ministry. John Wesley was one of the men who did such wonderful work up and down the eastern seaboard here in the colonies back several centuries ago. And, and toward the end of Wesley's life, Wesley was, was from England, toward the end of his life, he no longer had the strength to make that long couple-month journey by ship across from England, across the Atlantic, to come to the colonies and keep traveling and keep trying to strengthen the churches that he had planted. And so a younger man was commissioned to kind of pick up the mantle and carry forward John Wesley's ministry here in the States. His name was Thomas Cook. And um, one day, the elderly Wesley, he's, uh, Cook's getting ready to take over, and so Wesley ex escorted Cook out to the docks there in England, and Cook was getting on a ship to sail across the Atlantic to come here to the colonies. And before he left, they were saying their goodbyes, and Wesley, this older man now, was trying to encourage Cook and remind him and kind of charge him to what his call was when he got to the States. And the last thing that Wesley said to Cook was, Thomas, just offer them Christ. J just offer them Christ. Thomas, and his point was, what, what else do we have to offer? What else can we give people that matters for eternity? What else can we give people that changes lives? So Paul says, we proclaim Christ. And listen to how Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Paul says, For I determined not to know anything among you, Accept Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, what's interesting about Paul saying that is if you read Paul's letters, you'll find that Paul touches on just about every doctrinal issue you can imagine. So Paul didn't just walk around going, Jesus Christ is crucified, Jesus Christ is crucified. Paul touches on every kind of topic you can think of. He talks about family life. He deals with the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of salvation and Every subcategory of salvation, regeneration and election and justification. And Paul deals with a wide array of doctrine. But Paul's point here is that all of those different areas of doctrine and theology ultimately converge at the person of Jesus. He is the sum total of every doctrine that we preach. He is the sum total of every theological position that we're called to hold. So our, our goal as a church is not to be defined by some particular doctrinal position. We're not called to preach a what, we're called to preach a who. We proclaim Christ, and not just the person of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we preach Christ crucified. So we're called to preach the person of Christ and the work of Christ, particularly the work of Christ at the cross, where he hung in the place of sinners, where he became sin for us. So we preach the whole counsel of God. We believe all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. But we realize that all the different parts of scripture and all the different stories in the Bible are just spotlights that are meant to help us see Jesus better. The way Charles Spurgeon said it is, he said that just like every road in England leads to London, Every passage of Scripture ultimately is meant to lead us to Christ. So this is true in every ministry. Yes, we need to teach our kids the law of God. 
We need to teach our kids to obey mom and dad. We need to teach our kids what it means to be male and female. But more than that, we need to teach our kids Jesus. Yes, we need help in our marriages and knowing how to forgive one another better. And we need, we need help in marriage so that we'll learn to communicate better. But more than any of that, our marriages need Jesus. And if we give people everything else, but we drift away from that, we have lost what Christian ministry is meant to be. So in all of our preaching, and in all of our singing, and in all of our ministering, and in all of our classes, it all comes together at this one point. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But how do we proclaim Christ? So how, how are we to go about doing this? Well, Paul tells us, look back at that text. Paul says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. So how do we proclaim Jesus? Well, Paul says, we warn, that means admonish, and we teach. We proclaim Christ through warning and through teaching. And that's not just the pastor's role. Look forward to Colossians chapter 3. Go forward two chapters. Paul uses the exact same words. Go down to Colossians 3, verse 16. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing. That's the word for warning. Teaching and admonishing one another. So, so who's supposed to teach and admonish? We all are. So as God's people, we're called to teach and admonish one another. The word warn or admonish obviously has more of a corrective feel to it. Okay, so part of, part of proclaiming Jesus is warning away. So you might have a, a car that has one of those driver assist features on it. You know what I'm talking about? Where if you start veering over, uh, an alarm might start beeping or the wheel might pull back. My 99 pickup doesn't have this feature, but... You might be driving, and if you start veering over, my grandmother's car, the seat starts vibrating if you start veering out of your lane. It's there to warn you that you're veering off course. Okay, well that, that's Paul's idea here is that part of proclaiming Christ is warning. We, we warn one another when our, our thinking is veering off. We warn when our life is veering away from following Jesus. Warning involves pleading, and it involves persuading and it involves confronting and then then teach is a word that obviously has more positive connotations think of Paul in Romans 12 where he says don't be conformed to this world but be transformed how by the renewing of your mind right there there has to be warning and there has to be teaching we're not just trying to correct where thinking is off we want to rebuild a right understanding of God and a right understanding of man and a right understanding of life and a right understanding of the gospel so we teach that listen the Christian faith does not just say hey believe you don't need to ask questions you don't need to understand everything you don't need to understand anything just believe no 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 the Bible tells us what to believe and the Bible tells us why we're supposed to believe it. So we want to help people understand that the point of Christianity is not to go directly to the heart. Listen to me now. The Christian message goes to the heart, but it doesn't go directly to the heart. It goes to the heart through the mind. You have to understand. You have to be taught. It has to be explained. 
And so part of our ministry in proclaiming Jesus is teaching. And then Paul says at the end of that, we have to do it with wisdom. Because it takes wisdom to understand when you need to teach and when you need to warn. What, what, do I need this person need an admonishment? Or does this person need instruction? What, where are they at in their spiritual walk? Listen, if all my ministry ever in, involves is just warning, if all I ever do is just get up here and hammer you on all the things that you're doing wrong, something's wrong with my ministry. But on the other side of the coin, if all I ever do is get up here and teach and there's never any warnings. I never show the courage to call to repentance and warn you of bad beliefs and bad doctrine. Something's wrong there too. So it takes wisdom to know when warning is needed and when teaching is needed. But both of those methods are used ultimately to point people to Jesus. Okay, so there is a consistent message in Christian ministry. Here's the fourth thing. Christian ministry requires an unwavering focus. So we're proclaiming Christ, we're fulfilling the ministry of the Word. To what end? In other words, what's the goal of all of this? What are we after? Well, Paul tells us what we're after at the end of verse 29. Look at what he says. Paul says... We're warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Here's a purpose clause. That, so that, we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So what's our goal in Christian ministry? Our goal is to present everyone perfect in Christ. That word perfect is the word that's often translated mature. So the goal of my ministry, the goal of our ministry, is to present to the Lord mature, full-grown followers of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. The goal is not just salvation. The goal is also sanctification. Notice Paul's heartbeat. Listen to it in 1 Thessalonians 2. Read verses 19 and 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown or rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul's saying, Paul's saying the only reward I need to see at the end is to see you with the Lord on that day. Meaning, my reward will be to see you rewarded. My crown will be to see you crowned. My joy will be to see you having joy in the presence of the Lord. Okay, so, so the goal of Christian ministry is to see not only salvation, but to see God's people grow into maturity, into the image of of Christ. This is, this is so definitional to how we think about ministry. Our goal is not to get decisions, it's to make disciples. It's not to draw a crowd, it is to preach Christ with the goal of seeing people repent and believe. And then it's to take every believer who God entrusts in our care and do everything we can to help them move toward maturity. So that we're mature in our thinking and mature in our theology and mature in our worship and mature in our service and mature in our worldview. And another word for maturity would just be the word Christ-like. Paul uses those words, in a sense, interchangeably because listen to what he says in Galatians 4. Galatians 4.19. Paul says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth 
again until Christ is formed in you. Do you see how Paul describes his ministry? He felt like a woman in labor. And he ached to see Christ formed in them. In other words, Paul ached to see these people become more like Jesus. That's the goal. We want to help every follower of Jesus become more like Jesus. We're not, we're not happy to have a bunch of uh, perpetual spiritual infants. That's not the goal. We're not happy to be a church busting at the seams with nominal Christians. My goal is to present everyone who God entrusts in our care mature before the Lord on that day. I was, I was just talking with someone about this in the last couple weeks. That there is, there is a um, growing wave in Christianity today that is driven to just sort of boil the Christian faith down to the bare minimum. You'll run across this and you'll run across it more and more where it's basically saying, look, if you struggle with lots of parts of the Bible, that's fine. You don't have to believe all those parts. And if you struggle with what the Bible says about morality, no big deal. You don't have to believe what the Bible says about morality because being a Christian just means you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So as long as you believe in the resurrection, none of that other stuff really matters. And this has become a way, they think, of bringing people to the faith and helping them stay in the faith because you just get rid of all the obstacles. Because we're in a world that's going to say, if you believe God created everything that exists, you are a caveman. And if, if you believe what the Bible says about morality, that, that our sexuality is only meant to take expression in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, if you believe that, you are a bigot, the world's going to say. And if you believe some of these stories in the Bible that a man gets swallowed by a giant fish, you kidding me? You're a fool. And so the impetus behind this is to say, well, don't worry, you don't have to believe any of that stuff. You don't have to believe. You can have a different view of morality and a different view of creation. It doesn't. You can believe whatever you want, but as long as you believe Jesus rose from the dead, that's all it takes to be a Christian. So the idea is you just got to boil the Christian faith down and make it as thin as possible, just the resurrection. Make it super thin so that people don't have to worry about any of that other stuff. But I want to say I believe the exact opposite. I'm convinced that the way that you help people come and stay and continue and grow in the faith is not by trying to make your faith as thin as possible. It is by doing everything I can to make your faith as thick as possible. I want you to see that this Jesus who rose from the dead reigns as king and, and lays claim on every single area of your life and every single area of your thinking. And our goal is for every square inch of our lives to be conformed to what he says. So we're not trying to thin the faith. We're trying to thicken the faith. We want our roots to go as deep as they can possibly go. So our faith and our praise will rise as high as it can possibly rise. That's the goal. And that keeps us focused on the right thing. See, one of the challenges, and this is a challenge, I'm saying this as a pastor. One of the challenges in church life is in every other area of life, it's easy to find some tangible measure of success. Every other area of life. So if I have a business, it's easy to know if it's successful because I can look at the bottom line. Are those numbers red or black? Easy measure. Um, it, it's easy for me to know if this diet I'm on is working because I step on the scale every morning. Right? I see in digital form whether it's working or not. So, so what's the tangible measure? How do we know, how do we measure success in ministry? Is it, is it just nickels and noses? Is it, is it just budgets and baptisms? Now listen, we want to see people repent and believe and we want to see baptisms, but we can't control that. That's above my pay grade. 
But if, if that's the measure of success is nickels and noses, then I'll be tempted to do whatever it takes to get nickels and noses. Right? Let's bring in a Christian magician next Sunday and he'll spend 57 minutes doing a magic performance and then a three-minute gospel presentation, but he'll know how to work the invitation at the end. Every head bowed. Raise your hand if you're not sure. Now, everybody who's raising your hands, look at me. Now, everybody who's looking at me on the count of three, I want you to walk down front. One, two, three, walk down front. And everybody walks down front and everybody fills out cards and we can count that as success. But is that really success? Or, or is success really this? Just proclaim the message. Be faithful to the message. Leave the results to God and then take everyone who God entrusts in our care and do everything we can to see them move toward maturity. Well, I'm convinced Paul's saying that's what Christian ministry is really measured by. So Christian ministry requires an unwavering focus. And then here's the fifth thing. Number five, Christian ministry requires relentless effort. Christian ministry requires relentless effort. Look at how Paul says it in verse 29. Paul says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Get what Paul's saying? It's not just that Paul had the goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ. Paul says he labored to present everyone mature in Christ. That's, that's the word for manual labor, working to the point of exhaustion. And he even uses the word strive. That, that's the Greek word that we get our word agonize from. He labored and he agonized. That, that word's often used in, in Greek to describe an athletic competition. Think of two wrestlers who are grappling on the mat and every muscle is tense and all the energy is being exhausted in this competition. Paul's saying that's what, that's what Christian ministry should look like. If you, have, if you have never poured yourself into for the faith of others to the point that you walked away feeling like you're leaving a wrestling match, I wonder if you've ever really been involved in ministry. Because this sort of ministry is hard. And I tell you why it's hard. It's hard. It's hard because people are messy. We're messy. And spiritual growth, we're, we're working for maturity. Spiritual growth is rarely linear. It's often three steps forward and two steps back. And we're sinners and it's hard and it's so this is the sort of this sort of ministry work requires deep long-term long-lasting perseverance so Paul says we work and we agonize and our, our main tool I just I can't come back to this enough our main tool in this process of moving everyone toward maturity is the Word of God and what, what does it take? What does it take to teach the Word of God and to help people apply the Word of God and to get in a Bible study and help understand the Word of God and rightly apply it? It takes work to do that. That's why Paul said it this way, writing to Timothy, who is serving in a pastoral role. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Paul says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, Rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul's saying, Timothy, you've got to rightly divide the word. That means you've got to cut it straight. So what does it require for Timothy to be able to do that? Paul says, you've got to be a diligent worker. So, so applying God's word, using God's word to encourage and help and warn and correct takes work. But thankfully, Paul reminds us that we're not doing this work on our own. Because he says there in verse 
29, that he's striving according to his, that's God's, according to God's working, which works in me mightily. That means when we engage in this kind of ministry, we're not on our own. We experience God's power as we do this kind of work, as we labor for souls, as we labor in the Word, as we labor to help people grow in faith and stay steadfast in their faith and continue in their faith. When we do that, God promises that He will work in us and He will work through us. Listen, God doesn't promise to give His strength to people who watch from the sidelines. Don't be a lazy Christian. God doesn't promise to give his strength to people who are going to formulate their own vision of ministry. God promises to give his strength to people who engage in this sort of work. So we labor. We pour ourselves out in this kind of ministry because we know this sort of ministry matters for eternity. We're dealing with an eternal God. We're dealing with an eternal word. We're dealing with eternal souls. So, so what else could we possibly pour our lives into that has this sort of impact and this sort of long-lasting effect? We've talked about um, Charles Simeon before in our services. In fact, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago, we read a little biography about Simeon. He was a, a pastor in Cambridge, England. This is back in the 19th century had a very difficult start to his ministry. You might remember that he became a pastor at a church in Cambridge. The people didn't want him as their pastor, so they locked People own pews, their families own few pews, so all the pew holders locked their pews so nobody could come in and sit down when he would get up to preach. And just very difficult ministry. And he ended up, he ended up staying there at that church in Cambridge for over 50 years. It's just the, the picture of perseverance in ministry. Uh, but, but one of the young men who was saved under Simeon's ministry in Cambridge, and not only saved, but who ended up being called to the mission field was a guy named Henry Martin. You, you might have heard his name before. But Henry Martin was saved there in Cambridge. He was in Charles Simeon's church. He ended up going to the mission field. He served in India for a while and uh, left India and went up into the Middle East where he, he tried to translate the Bible into Persian, uh, had ministry to Muslims. Well, Henry Martin ended up dying a very early death. He was just 31 years old when he died. He got tuberculosis and died on the mission field. Well, this was obviously in the days before there was widespread photography. But there was an artist who, just a, a little while before Henry Martin died, painted a portrait of the missionary. And they painted this per portrait of Henry Martin, and they sent it back home to his pastor, sent it back home to Charles Simeon. Well, Simeon hadn't seen Henry Martin in years, and he got this portrait, and he opened it up, and he was, he was stunned by how poor Henry Martin looked. He was sick, he was thin, he was gaunt, he was obviously sickly. He had gotten reports that not long after the painting had been done, Henry Martin had died. Well, Charles Simeon took that portrait of Henry Martin, this guy who had become a missionary and died from his church. He took it and he hung it on the mantle right above the fireplace in his study. And one day somebody asked him why he had that portrait on the mantle in such a prominent place. And, and Charles Simeon said that every time he looked at that painting, it, like, it was like it cried out to him and said, don't trifle. Don't trifle. In other words, don't dilly-dally. Don't spend your life on foolish pursuits. Don't spend your life wasting it. Life is too short and eternity is too long. And every time he looked at this portrait of Henry Martin, who had given his 31 years in service to Christ on the mission field, it was a great reminder to him to make sure he invested his life in the sort of ministry that mattered for eternity.
And that, that is my plea to you this morning, church, is we want to be the sort of church that invests in the kind of ministry that matters for eternity. It is so easy to get distracted on secondary things. It is so easy to come up with secondary means of measurement that can make us feel good about where things are. May God keep us focused on the one message that matters. May God make us the sort of people who are willing to pour out our energy and even our lives to see people come to Christ and stay in the faith and grow in that faith. And may we be faithful that, that, that when the day comes, we can stand before the Lord and present a church body, present believers who are mature, who are fully grown in the cause of Christ. That, that's our goal. That's, that's the Christian ministry that we're after. So let's bow together for a word of prayer.